Hi, good morning. This morning, uh, we're going to continue our series in uh, Follow Me about discipleship. I don't have a slide going up because, as you heard, our computers are kaput. So everything's been kind of messed up and irregular this week. It's, it's been kind of an adventure, to say the least. Uh, I want us to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. As we think about mindset, we've looked at the fact that disciples make disciples, even though they're unfinished. You know, don't have to wait until we're perfect. Jesus didn't wait until his disciples were perfect because that'll never happen, not until Christ returns and we're outfitted for new life, consumed with the Holy Spirit. Disciples not only make disciples, but they follow Jesus and they follow him exclusively and they have no cost too great. That's the aim. That's the mindset. Disciples are leaders in that they follow Jesus. Others can faithfully follow them to find Jesus, to learn about Jesus, to realize new truths about Jesus. Disciples are laborers. It's a labor of love, being a disciple of Jesus Christ with a shepherd's heart like the one we follow in a work that can't wait. It's not down the road. It's every day. It's today. And last week we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, disciples are stewards. This morning I want us to look at the rest of 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at the soldier in verse 3. And if you have your New Testament open, look at the word soldier in verse 3. And the athlete, the athlete in verse 5. The farmer in verse 6. In verse 15, the workman or worker in verse 20, vessels, the vessel ready for the Lord of the house's use, which rolls right into the servant or slave or bond servant in verse 24. Now, we're not bond servants in the strict sense. We're not vessels in the household of the master. Uh, we're not workmen. We're not athletes, not in the sense Paul uses it. We're not the hardworking farmer, although I know there may be representatives of any one of these uh, vocations. We're not soldiers, but we are to have the mindset, the outlook, that uh, kind of featured and characteristic trait. So I'd like to read some of the verses here. I won't read the whole half of the chapter, but in starting with verse 3, suffer hardship with me, 
as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman or a journeyman or a craftsman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further godlessness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And verse 20, now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And verse 24, and the Lord's servant or bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, be able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. I hadn't been a follower, a disciple, a Christian very long when I, um, I chose to take a course on the Bible. And the teacher of the course was my former pastor, Bill Yeager. And at a college or graduate level course, uh, this particular course was uh, through uh, Mennonite Brethren Biblical Seminary, an extended extension campus. Um, we go through the syllabus. And I noticed on the syllabus that all the homework had to be typed. Well, I didn't type. And I thought, well, surely he's a man of reason. So after class, I approached him, and uh, I made my case. I showed him some of my printing. I always wanted to be an artist, and I had really nice printing, very clear, very legible, very, very readable. And I said, uh, surely you understand that I don't know how to type. I don't have a typewriter. That would be a terrible hardship. But I do have excellent printing. And it only stands to reason that if I can print the homework, as cleanly and as nicely as typewritten homework, that should suffice. And he looked at me and he said, 
it will not suffice. And he put his finger in the middle of my chest and he tapped it lightly and he said, type it. I was pretty stunned. What was I going to do? I left class, I got on my motorcycle, and as I was riding home, I, I, I saw a business machine and typewriter store. Uh, Shelly and I were newly married. Uh, we didn't have much. I walked in there, I said, this is what I need, what do you got, let me look at your options. Anyway, I walked out with uh, an Underwood electric typewriter and a how-to-type book. And I spent my extra evenings learning to type. I am so grateful that I was required to type because uh, at that time, I mean, I didn't see the digital age coming. I didn't see the need for using keyboards like everyone has a little keyboard even on their little smartphones. Uh, I ended up typing my dissertation. It has opened doors for me in so many ways. But the thing that helped me was that earlier in the class, Pastor Yeager had challenged us. He said, I want you to give your very best to this course. He said, we'll endure untold hardships to become lawyers, attorneys, doctors, engineers, to excel in athletics, to make the team in soccer or baseball or football. We'll go that extra mile. We don't think it odd at all that the world demands great things of us. And that's stuck in my mind. And that's basically what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, give God your very, very best. You've got to have the mindset that you're going to go the distance that you're going to pay whatever cost is required, that what you are seeking in the Lord is above all these other pursuits and aspirations. Do your best, says Paul. This is Paul's pep talk. You know, at halftime, when the team is down and they go into the locker room, and the coach gathers him around. He says, guys, gals, whoever the team, whatever the sport, this is it. And he gives them focus. He gives them a way of seeing the challenge so that they are renewed in their energy and their focus and their commitment and their aspiration. Paul is doing that with Timothy. We're already aware that, and although we don't know that there weren't any other pieces of correspondence. This is the last letter of Paul to Timothy. In here, he speaks about final things because Paul does not expect his ministry to continue outside of his house arrest and beyond his appearance before 
Nero, emperor of Rome, to whom he's appealed. His life is on the line. And he's asking Timothy to continue the work. Disciples have a can-do mindset. It's a mindset that's dressed in work clothes, if you will. It's a mindset that matches that of a soldier, an athlete, a hardworking farmer, and so forth. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's look at the soldier in verses 3 and 4. Share in my suffering or in suffering with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. It's interesting to me how many times soldiers and military campaigns, that is, uh, those marches to accomplish something great for the state or for whatever the emperor or the leader, the general, how many times soldiers and campaigns are used as an analogy in the kinds of writings that were contemporary with even the letters that Paul wrote to the early churches. Epictetus said, life is a kind of military campaign and a long and complicated one at that. Seneca, who was the advisor to the emperor, wrote, to to live is to be a soldier. And Paul in 1 Timothy, the letter that precedes this, Chapter 1, verse 18, tells Timothy to soldier on in a noble military campaign. I'm kind of bringing out the, the language, the metaphors of the, of the language, but that's the way he speaks to Timothy, drawing upon that same metaphor, that same image. A disciple maker is a soldier in his or her mindset, commitment, devotion, because we are to endure suffering. We are to avoid entanglements. We are to keep our focus on Christ. Even as Paul says in verse 8, telling Timmy, remember Jesus, Messiah, risen from the dead, offspring of David. This is our battle cry, he's saying. We are to remember Jesus Christ. We fix our focus on him. He causes our minds to be focused on the things above, the things of the Lord, the things of God. And the disciple looks out not only for his cause or her cause, but also for fellow soldiers, fixing his gaze on Jesus, but also looking out for those who are engaged in battle. In verse 10, he says, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. As disciples and disciple makers, we not only suffer for Jesus Christ, we also suffer for his church. The athlete, in verse 5, 
An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. This is an interesting expression, this expression, according to the rules. It was also used in imagery, which was also commonly drawn upon to drive home a point, illustrate some part of teaching when you're not speaking to athletes, but speaking to others and drawing upon the information. But competing according to the rules is kind of our wooden way of expressing it, but idiomatically or just, you know, it has that greater sense of distinguishing the professional athlete from the part-time athlete. The full-on athlete versus the semi or, if you will, amateur athlete. In fact, uh, just let me read to you from Epictetus, and he's not speaking to athletes, but he addresses his students. He says, have you trained dutifully? Which points to the fact that they are to be full-time athletes. That's the exact same words that I've rendered, trained dutifully. Have you trained dutifully, maintained the diet prescribed, held to the regimen, heeded your trainer? All these were things that were characteristic of the athlete, the full-on, full-fledged athlete, because there were training regimens that were required of athletes even before they got to the contest. And it's interesting to me that Paul sets the bar for Timothy like a great athlete, not an occasional, not a weekend, not a sometimes, but someone who every day is regimented, even down to his diet, sleep, and everything else. Paul sees himself as a pro in 1 Corinthians 9.27, when he says, I don't box as, as if I were boxing against the air. That tells me he has an opponent in mind each and every time. He boxes as somebody preparing for an opponent. He says, I don't ra- run as though there is no finish line. That tells me he's training and preparing. He runs for a purpose. He's a pro. And he's saying, Timothy, you got to be a pro too. The farmer in verse 6, it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. A disciple-maker is like a farmer plowing, planting, cultivating, watering, and harvesting, even if it is God who brings the harvest. And we, who are farmers in the sense that We are serving, planting, watering for Christ. That harvest is God's doing. Farmers have to be patient. James 5, 7 says, Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. We're patient to share and invest in those around us in each and every opportunity, knowing that only eternity will reveal 
the results of the harvest. And so we're not disheartened, which so often is the case because we need constant reinforcement, constant strokes. We have to have that mindset that we don't depend on the feedback, the approval, the applause, but we serve faithfully day in and day out, knowing that we're serving one who will bring a rich harvest, and we will deserve that reward. Look at the worker in verses 14 through 18. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's a journeyman who knows how to use the tools of the trade. What's interesting is rightly handling is an expression that means to cut straight. It was used of those who cut roads, paths. And, of course, Rome was famous for their roads. In a way, I don't even think we can fully appreciate. They cut those roads, and amazingly, I mean, they're just feats of architectural excellence. They cut those roads in a way that led in a direction just like the rows of a farmer, which is another way this expression to cut straight was used, cutting rows for farming. And also, it was used of cutting marble or stone for buildings and cutting it straight. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, the translation of the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek in Proverbs 3.6, In all your ways, he will direct you and direct you well, direct you straight. That's the same expression that's used here when it is translated rightly handling. Or in Proverbs 11, verse 5, the righteousness of the blameless will make straight their way, just as the Lord will make your paths straight so will your righteousness. And rightly handling the word of truth has as much to do with understanding it correctly as following it correctly. Cutting a straight line to the word of truth. And so it is that we who are disciples, we live by the word, we exhibit the word in our lives, rightly handling. I used to work for a plumbing shop. And there was some time there for a while where I thought, wow, being a plumber would be a great trade. It was a, a, um, it was a trade shop, so everyone had to, you know, be a part of the, the plumber's trade. And uh, they made good money. And the plumbers would tell me, man, you can really make great money as a plumber. You ought to think about it because I was a plumber's helper out there working along with them, handing them tools like a nurse to a doctor, doing the dirty work for them, digging the ditches and so forth. 
So it became even more appealing. But you know what was interesting is uh, without the right tools, plumbers are not worth a plumb nickel. If they don't have the tools, they can't do any, any more than me. They have the knowledge, but if they don't have the tools, and in a way, the workman is not only approved by his diligence and outlook, but the way he manages and handles the word of truth. <clears throat> a vessel, pure. He says there are expensive vessels in verses 19 through 22, expensive vessels and inexpensive vessels. This, the vessels that were used for the most honorable things were made of precious metals, which were not common. Other vessels, which were used for very lowly household duties, uh, if you can think of some of the ways that you might manage trash and waste in your home, but what he is emphasizing here is that we are the vessels that serve God used for honor. And what he wants to emphasize is that we are to be prepared and ready for his use. And so he talks about being cleansed and ready for his use. You know, in order for him to use us, we have to be devoted to him. And when sin encumbers us, wrong attitudes, broken relationships, when we're out of whack, we're not available. We're not accessible to him. And yet, God in Christ has made provision. He's made provision, as we're told in verse 7 of Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Every sin, every wrongdoing, every wrong attitude is atoned in Jesus Christ. We're not to live under the guilt, under the shame. It isn't just uh, setting it aside. It's being freed and liberated that we might serve him, that we might be ready for his use. In 1 John 1, 9, John's letter to the believers, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and for, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The key is... Uh, not as I foolishly, foolishly thought as a young Christian that somehow I had to um, be a part of that cleansing or that operation by confession. But confession is the way that we kind of process the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Confession is the way that we appropriate. That word appropriate means that we claim it. We take it for ourselves. We make it serviceable. Sometimes we need to be reminded that the things that encumber us, that weigh us down, that get in the way of us being really 
ready for use in the Lord is, is by saying, Father, I agree with you about my wrong attitude, my actions, uh, that secret sin. I agree with you about my behavior toward another, my attitude or uh, my, you know, my stubborn opinion. Uh, maybe seeing somebody in a villainous way and not seeing them with the eyes of the Lord. Those things all encumber us in a way that create a mindset which puts us on the sidelines, pulls us out of the race. And this table, with its bread and its cup, it's routine. But routine doesn't mean it isn't profound. It's something we've done many, many times before. It's about as old school as you can get. It's yesterday's news, but it's just as powerful, just as real, and it always will be. It is the gathering point of the church, of his disciples, because there is no alternative or substitute or peer or rival to what Jesus Christ offers us in his life and death and resurrected life for us. And this bread and this cup represents our reminder, our knowledge, our understanding once again that there is no sin to encumber us, to stand between us and the Lord that we follow and moving after him and serving him and becoming a fit vessel for his use. And the hope and the newness and the power is represented in his blood, which sealed a new covenant, setting aside the old covenant, giving us a future and a hope that is ours now, not tomorrow, to be realized today, even this moment. And in that, you will hold this bread and this cup in your hand, and as you take the bread and as you take the cup, even as you ingest it, take to your heart and your mind this truth, which is representative of the living Lord who has freed you, liberated you to great things. It is the bondservant who in Exodus said, I love my Lord and I want to remain his servant. That's our attitude this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll take the bread and the cup. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your spirit poured out and at work in our lives, that there is no encumbrance in Christ, no shame, no history, which should withhold from us your life, your power, your presence, even now, that we might follow you with freedom, with joy, with new life, to serve you and do great things that you have for us to do in our homes, in our relationships, in our outlook, in our purposes. 
we take this bread and cup humbly with great gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.